what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy Mm -hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen their setup online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with a pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. Yeah. How, do you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for supplements dog. available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand, so... People want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement-wise. They can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninecuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around so I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. The goat. The billy goat's gruff. Ein's a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> the wiener himself. <laughs> Einswick dog quip. Yeah. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Thurman, Einswick dog quip, the Ein's a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. Einswickdogquip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. one of them. It just, we'll put try it, it out. Notes. Yeah, put it, you'll, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. You'll buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm in my studio. 
and I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, who's in the studio. You're in your work studio. Yeah, I'm at work. I'm in a real live actual podcast studio on work time. <laughs> Should we call you international man of mystery, Pat Stewart? That's just jet-setted straight back in from the United States? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why we're here. We haven't had time to actually catch up and we haven't recorded in weeks. It's been literally weeks since we've seen each other. Yes, it um, has. But yeah, I just got back in yesterday or the day before, some of that, straight back to work. But yeah, it was amazing. Had a really cool time. I was over there, did the seminar in Chicago and then like five-day school. Can I tell you, so like I'm sure that he's sick of hearing it, but Fabian Romo's place called Found Chicago. It's actually in Chicago, like city. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a boarding kennel, training center, all of that. It's there's, there's a retail store, there's daycare, you know, all the things, but it's actually, it's all under one roof. Like it's all, you know, indoors because it's in Chicago city, uh, like a big warehouse kind of center in a really amazing neighborhood on the Chicago river, dog park across the other side of the river, like without a doubt the most incredible facility I've ever seen in my life. And not just sort of, you know, like you see big outdoor ones, you know, big, beautiful places, but I've never seen anything like it that is as big and well put together all under one roof, like no outdoor areas, right? It's incredible. Incredible. I'll have to make a point of looking it up because I've never really looked into it before. And considering that's our trade here at work, being involved in daycare and pet boarding and training and everything like that, it's our wheelhouse kind of thing. Pre-COVID, me and the team, and mainly me and Dave, over to what's called the Pet Boarding and Daycare Conference over in the United States, where we went and Mm -hmm. networked with a lot of people. They run one in California and the other one over in Pennsylvania. So Mm -hmm. one in one side of the United States and then the other on the other side of the United States. I think they're about eight months apart. So we've only been to the one over in Burbank, which is in California. But it's been great because we've gone and networked with a lot of people in the same sort of industry, training and daycare and boarding, and gone and met them and toured their facilities and met the staff and, you know, had lunches with the people and everything like that. And it's been actually really eye-opening to see what's over there and, you know, see some of the movers and shakers, people who are doing it well, people who aren't doing it so well. So, yeah, for us, that's been invaluable. Mate, one of the cool things, I'm sure you would have seen it, I've never seen it before, is this canine grass that they have in Fabian's facility. Oh, yeah, we use it. Is yeah, we use that it. That can flush. Yep. I'd never seen anything like that. So it's like a raised platform. It's, you know, six inches uh, concrete sort of bed. Then it's got just, you know, normal sort of grass, but it's a special one, like, you know, it's filtered kind of thing. Yeah, it's filtered. Yeah. Mm. But then under that, there's a whole, so you can hose like, you know, waste or whatever through that but then underneath it it has like an irrigation system so it's all internal but Mm. you can turn that on at the wall and essentially flush it so the dogs come straight out of the kennel with still indoors because chicago you know it can be super cold they don't necessarily take dogs outside it's impractical to do that all the time dogs go straight onto this there's like a few you know square meters of it the dogs learn you know they've got like a puppy program they raise dogs from scratch and they learn as soon as you come out, you go straight onto this toilet, then you can get to work and it's all under one space. Right. So it's this seamless, fast process. And even though it's totally indoors and totally self-contained, there's no smell. It doesn't stink at all. I've mm. never seen anything like it. I was like, like, I'm sure it's common in those kind of facilities, but I just don't work in those facilities. I don't go to them. So I was super impressed by it. It was incredible. It's becoming more mainstream. It never used to be, but that seminar that I was talking about before, the pet boarding and daycare conference, that's where I first met the guys from Canine Grass. And mm-hmm. we were looking at bringing it over. And I think in Australia, there's a couple of companies that do it over here. There's one that has a, a Canine Grass that we're using in some of our facilities. It's very expensive to bring it out over here because it's yeah, I bet. Yeah. it's all imported. We don't have the flush system. We've got it set up so it spills over like an irrigated system that you can hose uh-huh. it through and we use an odosome in there that we get from a company called Safe4 and it really chews up all the stinky odour and everything like that and then just flushes it mm-hmm. out through the irrigation system. But, yeah, I met the guys from Canine Grass, had a good talk with them and those conferences, like I said, you just get so much institutional knowledge. They're just fantastic if you're running a facility like that. But, yeah, I've never seen Fabian's place but keen to check it out. Incredible. Yeah. And then, so we did the two day seminar there and then we did like a five day school with 10 people at it and we all lived in. So that was incredible as well. He's got at the back, like he says to me, oh, I've got these dorm rooms, <laughs> not dorm rooms. It's like nicer than my house. Oh, wow. It's this incredible. Yeah. Oh, dude. It's like this incredible living area with this deck out the back that looks over the river. Had a chef come in that cooked for us every meal. 
It was incredible. It was incredible. I, I had an amazing time teaching. I imagine, you know, I got good, great feedback. Everybody sort of had a good time. It was really good though, because we work nine to five, but then, you know, we're hanging out. Everybody's, there kind of was no work hours, right? So we're up training dogs at 11 o'clock at night still. And yeah, you know, like it was, inc- it had an incredible time. It was really good. Mm. And then um, after that was done, jumped on a plane down to Florida uh, for the ISCP conference. And that was it was like going home again, you know, like I, I hate to rub it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you were busy and couldn't get there, but <laughs> had an awesome time and catching up with so many people that I hadn't seen in years, you know, it was the first one in three years. And so just seeing sort of, you know, that family of people who you, you, you used to sort of engaging with and, and dealing with on a regular basis and mm. hadn't been in so long, met heaps of people that I'd been communicating with and and people who I'd done Zoom lessons and stuff with over the last few years, but had never actually met in person. So that was incredible to catch up with those guys or meet those guys. Some amazing speakers at conference. My favorite was Tobias Gustafsson. I know we had him on the podcast and I've, I've often shared his stuff into our group. But his presentation was fantastic. It was incredible. And he showed like a step-by-step sort of how he develops these detection and tracking dogs. And there was a part in it where everybody watching sort of did the like, <gasps> like amazing. Cause he does like the way that he transitions from the hunt from the, for the toy and just in the hand, right. So the dog clearly knows that you have it and is indicating on it and all of that. And, you know, really powerfully trying to win it to turning that into a search. Mm. It is incredible. The way that he like bangs it against a wall and does this like sleight of hand move where the dog's like, oh my God, the Kong just went into the wall <laughs> and starts <laughs> starts searching on the wall. It was incredible. You could hear everybody that in the crowd sort of gasp as it happened. Like, oh my God, I can't believe that works. And he himself, I've got such a man crush on him, but just the way that he can handle the dog, like he's so, he moves so well and Anyway, it was really good. I really enjoyed the whole conference. It was fantastic. Me and you were we were made ambassadors of the ISCP. So I got a little pin, got a little badge that says that we're ambassadors. So yeah, it was great. Thank you very much, ISCP, for recognizing us as ambassadors and quite a privilege. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad you had a good time over there because, uh, yeah, I got fucking severe FOMO watching everybody <laughs> sending me clips and people of the past sending me those lovely wish you were here comments, which is nice, but when you're already suffering FOMO, it's pretty big time. However, yeah. I, uh, just a shout out uh, as well. Narelle and I got to go up to Brisbane to do a weekend seminar with Sue War from Fellowship of the Paws. She does a lot of sight hound, greyhound rescue up there. She put on a seminar for us. It sold out both days. Great reception from the people that turned up. Had a great time up there. Sue did such a great job getting it all together. Everything was seamless. It just flowed really nicely. The day before that, all three of us went out and visited Big Dog Pet Foods where they do all the raw feeding foods. They took us through from start to finish of the factory, showed us every square inch of what they do. We met all the team, went into the warehouse, watched them prepare the food. They showed us all the fresh produce that they put in there. It is amazing what they do and how good, just the enormous lengths they go to to prepare that dog food and all the cleanliness that they have and the integrity around all the products that they're doing. We got to meet the team. We got to sat down and they put on an amazing lunch for us. We met a lady there called Tiffany um, and her dog, Ted, and I was giving her some help advice for Ted. He's a little rascal, but she's part of the graphics team over there. So just an amazing weekend and very thankful to be um, received so well. Narelle did an amazing job. She's just such a consummate professional. I'm so proud of her. She's just ahead of her game in nutrition and feeding and supplementation and everything like that. She's just amazing to watch. I'm just in awe of how good she is. I'm very, very fortunate to have her as as my wife, but also to learn from her as well because she complements a lot of what I do behaviorally so much with what she does nutritionally. Even again, just sitting down and, and doing podcasts with her for her podcast, it's always an education for me. So, so she does a lot of what you and I sort of do where she doesn't reveal a lot about what she's going to talk about. I just get to learn mm-hmm. about it on the show. So yeah, we, we just say, well, I don't want to know about it. I'm just going to sit here as the dumb half of the show and uh, <laughs> you kind of you ed- educate me on it. But it's it's great. You know, I always learn so much and every time I've I come away from it, I just think, wow, she's just – you know, you can tell why she's doing so well with with everything she's doing. She's she throws a hundred percent at everything and is just not happy until she finds that it's irrefutable what she puts together. Yeah, that's awesome. We have a topic, and I think this is maybe the third 
time that we have tried to do it. You mean the topic so on suppression? Just... <laughs> no, I think we're a couple of hundred times into that, or at least at least fifty. Yep. Literally, we're probably fifty times into trying to talk about suppression. I think so. Um, but I'm going to jump into it, or we should talk about suppression to avoid this topic. <laughs> So this one's, it's from Natalie Dobkins. It's in our group and I'm going to read it or sort of summarize it a little bit because it, it got a fair amount of traction, got a lot of comments and a, a lot of interest in the group. And I thought it, it's worth us talking about. So mm. she says, dog nerds, please help me wrap my brain around something. I've been learning more about how to avoid using food coercively and be careful to not turn food into punishment. One thing that stuck with me is what happens second spreads. So if you have tight sequencing of feeding the dog and then exposing or doing a bad thing, the emotions of the second will spread to the first. Emotional contagion, I believe it has been referred to as, and poisoning your food in training. For example, your dog hates grooming and you are feeding the dog first, then you touch their paws, which they really hate. Or perhaps the dog has separation anxiety and you give the dog a frozen Kong and then you leave. You feed the dog in an attempt to distract them from the approaching dog so the dog is eating and then sees the trigger. Here's the question. When working with the box, does this have a high risk of emotional contagion and cause the dog to have an aversive to food? Or does this not matter because of classical conditioning rules and all negative stimulus stops when the dog stops eating and continues as the dog is eating? Pressure happens at the same time while eating, not before or after eating. Next one, I guess a follow-up question after I've typed this out, following this vein of thought, we're leading with food, then something bad happens. The dog has a negative emotion towards, can lead to poisoning food. Does this mean you should usually start with the pressure first? And then she says, well, damn, now I've fallen down a rabbit hole and has led me to this. Hopefully, final question. If the dog is actively having a maladaptive response, lunging, barking, biting, et cetera, to a trigger, and you are offering food while the dog is having this response, will you be reinforcing the behavior? If not, will you be or can be poisoning your food? Wow. There's so many questions in one question. There's a lot to that. Mm. I think what I want to start with is this is something that you definitely do see quite a lot in dog training. And I think that it's a misunderstanding of classical conditioning and, and sequencing. I think that it's sequencing is a big part of dog training that we we maybe don't put enough weight into when we teach it, when we talk about it, and, and even when we do it. And I think just the order in which you do things and how important that can be. Mm. I talk about this, like most obviously we think about it, say loading markers, Right. More often than not, we sort of teach people, you know, you say we're going to load a click out. We teach people to click and give food, click and give food, click and give food. But like what's happening prior to the click is very important. And the level of arousal and the emotional state and all that kind of stuff prior to the click is precedes the click. And so then it becomes quite important. We see this most notably in the way that people load their toy marker. This is one of the things I've gotten heaps of feedback from when I started sort of teaching this in in um, in seminars. Well, you know, when you realize something's important, like you sort of overlook how important something is and you don't make a big deal about explaining it. Indeed. And when I, ch when I realized this and I started explaining it in a lot more detail, the idea that I want to be already playing with the dog, like I want the dog to be like already engaged in the game with me and I've won the toy or, you know, I've stolen it from the dog, whatever. And I'm running away from the dog or the dog is actively pursuing it. And then that's when I give my marker, when I can count on the dog being ready to get it or being about to get it and do so with enthusiasm. Because what I noticed quite a lot, and I noticed that it was diminishing the, I won't say diminishing the drive, but diminishing the reinforcing nature of the gameplay. Like it was, the game was not as exciting to the dog and therefore not as likely to act as a reinforcer, right? Like to truly make the dog do the thing that we want them to do again and do it powerfully is that people would do exactly as I say, they would give the marker and then produce the toy and then start playing with the dog. And like the sequence of that seems quite correct, right? That's correct for its use, but not correct for its loading. You want the dog already really enthusiastic about it so that the marker gets attached to the idea of this like high level of enthusiasm and you know necessity to strike the toy rather than 
when people are loading the marker and the dog's just sitting there out of drive and they say yes, and then they pull out the toy and then they have to bring up that level of arousal to the dog. So the sequence gets kind of laid out to the dog that I'm out of drive. I hear the marker, you produce the toy, you bring me into a higher level of arousal, and then I want to play with it. And you see that when people load their marker that way, they get a similar version of the behavior. They get a, a version when they ask for the behavior where the dog's like, oh, like I'm out of drive. You kind of have to coerce me a little bit, get me excited about doing the behavior, and then I'll do it. Because you know the speed, power, enthusiasm, intensity, all those buzzwords of the way that the dog takes the reinforcer is the way that the dog will perform the behavior. So simply by changing the sequence in which people load their marker, by getting the dog really aroused, by playing with them for free, getting all excited, then giving the marker, then playing with the toy again, means that when you then teach in that way and you keep that sequencing, when you give the command, even when the dog's out of drive, that command tends to bring the dog into drive and gets a better version of the behavior, like a more flashy, powerful version, something that resembles actually taking the toy rather than doing work that will lead to the toy. Mm. I think that the same relates to the food. Like that's sort of what Natalie's ex explaining there is that the sequencing and how important it needs to be that not necessarily talking markers, but if we're going to talk about using food to counter condition a problem or to help a dog through a problem, one thing we see very often is that people want to do that because they don't have the drive and arousal on cue, right? Like they haven't captured it prior to the training. They then want to sort of show the dog the food. They get the dog excited about the idea of taking food and then start exposing the dog to the trigger. Mm. And that can have an effect where when the dog sees food, the dog then starts thinking, well, the bad thing's coming. You're about to start trying to expose me to the trigger. So I should cap myself because I notice that you get me excited and that's what takes me into the situation that I don't want to be in. So it can be that the food can become aversive for sure. That could be one of the reasons that the dog would sort of cap itself. But the idea probably more likely is that what becomes aversive to the dog is entering that higher state of arousal even. Like even just the idea of getting excited about something can become a little bit aversive to the dog because this is the state that you usually get me into before you expose me to my problem, right? Or before you expose me to the trigger or scare me or whatever it is that is going to happen. So very often the dogs sort of cap themselves and they realize like, if I stay below this threshold, you won't expose me. Or it probably isn't even that cognitive. It's probably more just the dog, that conditioned response where the dog finds itself unable to get to that higher level of arousal because it knows that that has a negative impact on it. Just to end on that last bit that you talked about, I would say and I'm only guessing here, a lot of what we do in dog training or animal training in general is guessing anyway, because we can't really get that deep inside to our head where we can say that is absolutely what happened. We have to summarize yeah. on our experiences and our observations. With that in mind, when you can observe something over time and you can see that there is a repetitive pattern going on, then you can conclude that it's very likely that that's what the dog is thinking. There was a time not so long ago where I just did this social experiment just to try and deduce how people felt about taking money without any actual hook involved in it. So I was oh, basically yeah. walking around with a $20 bill just trying to give it to people and the amount of people who were suspicious about it and some people just put their hands up and walked away from me. They were just mm. like, oh, what's this for? What are we doing? And that was, for me, was very intriguing because it was kind of, it came off the back of doing certain things with dogs in certain experiments that I was doing with behaviors and finding that dogs were doing the same thing with food or reinforcement sometimes is that sometimes the dog would look at you and like going, why are you giving this to me now? Where I thought to myself, mm -hmm. isn't that intriguing that nine times out of 10, the dog wouldn't question it, it would just greedily snatch it out of your hand or come over and engage in it. However, on certain types of days or with certain types of stimuli, the dog was reluctant to actually take it from you. Now, I found that socially when I was working with people, not when I was working with, but when I was just doing this this social experiment, people were avoiding me when I had $20. They'd say, what's the catch? And I'd say, there is no catch. You can have it. It's yours. Mm. And that's literally what I said to them. You can have it. You can take it from me. Everybody go, well, what am I supposed to do? If that if we were having any sort of conversation about it, they kept saying to me, what's the hook? What's the hook? What do you want me to do? For most people, it became a complete aversive. They were just avoiding me altogether. And I'm thinking mm. to myself, isn't this intriguing? I can't give away $20. So some people would come put their hand on it and they go, so you're just going to give it to me? And I'd say, yeah. 
And they were looking around for cameras or all sorts of things. I said, you're not being filmed. And they were going, so I can just have it. And I'm going, yeah. And then they take their hands off and go, oh, no, thanks. No, I don't, I don't trust you. <laughs> and, uh, mate, that was that was absolutely intriguing. It took me ages for somebody to take it off me, and it was a kid who came up and grabbed it. And his mum said, give it back to the man. And I said, no, no, he can have it. And she said, yeah, but what's it for? And I said, he can have it. So I wasn't telling people that it was a social experiment. I just said he can have it. And she goes, oh, okay. And they just walked off and took it. But I can't tell you how many people. I I would have loved to have filmed it just it, it was just for me to try and come to terms with what would I have to do to give it away when there's no explanation for it. And mm. it was a very interesting experiment. And I'd love to work with somebody to find out how that level of mistrust actually exists in people or how we became so jaded or how it became such an aversive stimuli to give people what you conceive or perceive, I should say, as a reinforcer and yet people wanted nothing to do with it whatsoever. Mm. Uh, now, interestingly enough, going back to more in line with what Natalie was saying before, and I think this is along the lines of it, there was so much in there I'd still probably need a refresher on the question again. However, when I've worked with dogs and we've got into a concept of something that starts off as positive or repetitive, and you can see that the dog is formulating an easy understanding, this is what I need to do and this is what I get for it, or this is what you've got, and there is something that's required to do. You start off quite easily. The dog is invested in the actual proposition of what you're doing, and they'll take the reinforcer off you. However, if you get to certain thresholds with dogs, I find that even though something starts off quite repetitive at the start, you'll get to a point where you'll meet a threshold in a period of time where the dog will transition to an aversive, and it will just say, I'm checking out of this. I don't yeah. want to proceed any further from here. Again, along the lines of something that I've repeated many times before of the, the metric system, the meter, centimeter, millimeter concept that I keep repeating to people because it's something I have to remind myself of is when you're over threshold, you're over threshold. And it doesn't matter what you want to do to try and make up ground. Your subject, your student will reject what you've got because they're not happy mm. or they don't feel good about the situation there anymore. It's like the concept of being very hungry and then being satiated versus overeating and then feeling sick. And a lot of that territory really comes with some interesting breakthroughs in what will actually happen next. So even though you perceive that you're still good and you've still got currency there in the exercise that you're going to do, it can be that you just really didn't read your mark well and suddenly mm. you're in total different territory. You've now got a dog that is totally checking out of what you're trying to do and you're sitting there thinking, what the fuck happened? Yeah. And now I've had that before and I consider myself to be very careful about reading the frame of mind that a dog is in. And it happened to me not so long ago when I was doing an NDTF class and I was showing the student something and suddenly the dog just checked out with me. And now I'm thinking to myself, well, this rarely happens. Like I don't really encounter this problem much because I'm paying attention. Now the problem was I wasn't paying attention. If I had to be honest, I was being arrogant about the situation and I definitely wasn't paying attention to what was going on and I just didn't see that I was literally in a centimetre mode and the dog was in millimetres and I, I literally yeah. contradicted my own teaching by doing something which I say don't do to other people. Now it wasn't that I'd done such a heavy stride into, into territory where it was going to create a problem for me. It was a one-off sort of thing. But I could just see that the principal with the dog was thinking, I checked out a while ago, dude, and you weren't watching and I'm not invested in what we're doing in here anymore. And I just thought to myself, that's quite interesting. I talk about it. I show people how to avoid it and yet I actually did it myself by not paying attention to what goes on. I think if I've got any value to add to this, it's you really need to pay attention to what's going on. And primarily I stated before that a lot of what we do is based in keen observation and you really do mm. need to pay keen observation to what's going on because the session can be so short. You don't need to have such endurance in it where you're just thinking when I'm talking about endurance, that could be two minutes. It was one minute, 30 seconds too long. And you think to yourself, mm. well, it was only two minutes. But for the dog, that was one minute, 30 seconds of shit that it didn't want to really endure with you at all. It checked mm. out 30 seconds ago. Yeah, mate, just I was thinking I need to reread her questions to be more specific. Mm. But as you're talking, I was just thinking as well. One of the things that I think is the issue with training with food and especially not just training with food even, but training like a nervous reactive dog when we're, we're trying to get them through a situation 
is that as dog trainers, for the most part, that's kind of all we do with those dogs. Like that's what I see a lot of people just sort of getting straight to that because, you know, you're a trainer, especially if you're doing in-home behavior mod stuff, someone calls you, you go around, they say that, you know, there's this issue, whatever it is, and you're immediately into trying to fix or address that issue. And I think one of the things that I've noticed with the dogs that I train they're not dogs that come to me for an issue. They come to be taught something specific. Mm. And what I do is I spend a lot of time just teaching them what me and that dog's relationship looks like in a training session. And so we'll spend as long as it takes, I don't care how long it takes, to develop all the right motivations. I'm going to spend as long as it takes. And with some dogs, that's five minutes because I know the bloodline and I know the type of dog. And with other dogs, it can be multiple sessions where I want to sort of feel out the dog and be like, hey, what are you into? Like, you know, what kind of game do you want to play? Like, how hungry are you? Are you one of those bottomless pit dogs? Or do we need to train with food in a way that you find fun? Mm. Or are you only got a very small appetite and so you're only willing to eat a little bit? Like you, all these kinds of questions that you're going to find out about a dog to then set yourself up to then go, okay, I know who you are. I know how I'm going to manipulate these drives that you have and turn those into motivation for work. And so we spend as long as it takes to do those things. And then if we encounter any problems, I have all those tools so I can overcome those problems really quickly. And I think relating to the question that Natalie's asked and is everybody sort of talking about in there is I think that's what's missing quite a lot from the behavior mod sort of space is the idea that you just spend as long as it takes with the dog, developing a relationship with the dog. That means these are our training windows. And in this time, things will go well for you, but it's a transactional relationship of a way, right? Like the, making the dog operant in that space where the dog understands, oh, you know, I can manipulate you. You have things that I like. You play games that I like to play. You have food that I like to eat and I can manipulate you by staying engaged with you and offering behaviors and, you know, following lures and all these kinds of things. And we give the dog like a fair amount of power in doing that. And with the dogs that I train and, and you develop in that way, even though I am usually working towards training them to do a specific thing or a series of things, whatever is of course I encounter problems along the way. Of course I see the dog, like, you know, it turns out another dog turns up and it's a bit reactive or whatever. But by that point, I have all those tools in place that it doesn't really become a, like it's not, it's a non-starter, you know, like I see the issue, I can remedy it right away. Now that would mean that, you know, probably I've already got my tools of compulsion in place as well. I'm either using my slip lead or prong collar or whatever. So I have ways to tell the dog not to be involved in things. And then when they make good decisions, I can reinforce them for doing that. So I think to sort of pick that template up is super important and put that over the top of the idea of when you're working with a dog that has an issue, there's got to be a lot of time spent not working on that issue. Mm. Because I think that more to her point, it's not necessarily just about food being coercive. It's more about like if every interaction with the dog is spent trying to remedy an issue or, or going face to face with what the dog finds aversive then it's going to find the whole training sessions aversive. It's going to find all of its interactions with you and, you know, probably ipso facto then like all of its interactions with any new person or, or trainer or whatever, or even its own handler somewhat aversive because every time I am involved with these people, they leverage me to do things that I don't want to do. And I think that for me, that's why I encourage people. I don't train dogs until I know how to motivate them. I don't get involved in trying to teach them to do anything or fix any of the issues that they have until I know how to motivate them. And in learning how to motivate them, there's a very good chance the issues that they have are going to go away by themselves. Or when I have those things, the way that I'm going to fix those issues is going to be much simpler, easier, cleaner, but it's definitely going to have more sort of emotional weight on the side of the scales, whether the dog thinks like, yeah, good things happen around this person. This is an opportunity to earn. This is an opportunity to have fun. This is an, an open window for success, not seeing every training session as an open window for a challenge that has to be overcome in a really aversive way mm. or, you know, having to draw a lot of courage every session. And I think that's one of the issues that we face as trainers is that, you know, we're getting paid to fix the issue and people want, you know, when you go to someone's house and they're like, you know, my dog has a problem with the man in the blue hat, they immediately want to be out on the street showing you, look, this is what he does with the man in the blue hat. And it's like, no, but give me a couple of days with the dog, let me settle in and then let the dog trust me 
let the dog understand that I can motivate it in certain ways. And then when we see the man in the blue hat for the first time together, we'll have a, a level of trust, but also the ability to communicate with each other in a much more effective way than if we just went out there and did it right now. Because right now, of course, I can expose him to the man in the blue hat and give him food, or I can bring his attention to me with the food and then expose him. And that would cause all the issues that Natalie's asking about. So I think that's kind of the first and probably most important thing that I have to say on this whole topic, I think, is that the idea that getting straight into training in this way will for sure cause issues, but it could be much worse than we're even thinking that it could make, you know, that you're not necessarily just having the dog think of food being a coercive thing. And then, you know, that the negative thing, giving its weight and value to the food. Now the dog distrusts anybody giving it food in that sort of way. It could be much worse than that. In fact, and I think very often we see that it is, is that the whole training situation, the whole interaction with a person, the, the whole leaving the handler, whatever it is, that can become quite aversive to the dog. And the dog starts to think like, uh, this is uh, all people ever do with me is try and expose me to this thing that I hate. And very often what becomes a metric of success is that the dog doesn't react to the thing anymore, but it's usually because the dog's just kind of like quit, you know, like he just sort of doesn't display a lot of drive because he's just like, oh, fuck my life. I'll go along with it. Yeah. A lot of interesting points there and some real deep topics to contemplate on. And while you're talking about that, it was making me think of something that I saw pop up on the internet a while ago, which it really troubled me when I read this and mulled over it a couple of times. And I really wanted to say something in response, but I thought, oh, I just don't know whether I can open that tin of worms right now. And (laughs) the point that was typed in was, if behavior is the question, then food is the answer. And immediately when I read that, I thought, no wonder there are so many fucked up dogs out there in society right now. If that, What does that mean? It didn't even have an explanation of it. It was talking around the problem of solving behavioral related problems. And the author's suggestion was that if behavior is the issue or the question, then food is the answer. I was too annoyed by it to get involved. I was reading some of the comments and they were just so arbitrary. I just thought, oh, do I have time in my life to really get invested in some of these? You know, when you read things and you just think, oh man, do I really, really want to get into the Alice in Wonderland propaganda with these people right now? Because I just know I'm going to be sucked into the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Yeah. And I thought to myself, this is why there are so many fucked up people. Now, there might be people listening to this and thought, well, Glenn, you should have offered an explanation. If you're going to be critical of another person's proclamation, you should have a suggestion that would help people benefit from it. Well, my answer Mm. to that is I do. I spend time like you do educating people on a regular basis. I'm doing NDTF groups with students for most time throughout the year, trying to teach them to debunk a lot of these theories so they can learn to do it better. And I'm letting people see me train dogs and make mistakes and talking through them so they can see when we have got dangerously close to thresholds and how to stop. That example that I was talking about before where I did actually go over threshold and the dog had a negative response to it. Even though that was, like I said, it was a one-off, it was also good for students to be able to see and me to be able to admit I made a mistake. I wasn't paying Mm. attention. The dog went over threshold. I wasn't paying attention to something that started off in an appetitive format and now it's turned into an aversive one. Now the dog doesn't like what I'm offering or it may be feeling satiated, so it's kind of thinking, well, fuck you, I got what I wanted out of this program. I don't need any more. It's also an interesting concept, and we did this the other day, which was something fascinating as well, and it's it's come up in a lot of conversations, and it's nothing highbrow, but it's still worth an honourable mention, is the fact that even in some training, and a student brought this up in the most recent group that's out in the backyard at the moment, there was a situation where a dog did a unwanted behaviour only to correct itself into a wanted behavior and then immediately be marked and then reinforced. This happened a couple of times. The student who was doing this, where everybody was observing it, one of the students in that group piped up and said, couldn't that be contributing to a problem? And I said, yes, in my mind it can be, but I'm not going to tell you Mm -hmm. the answer. I want you to tell me what you think it is. And they said, well, I'm just thinking that the dog is doing an unwanted or undesirable behavior and then immediately going into a desirable behavior, then being marked and reinforced. So it's actually becoming a chained behavior where the dog's mm-hmm. realizing that now I need to do something naughty to do something good to get a reinforcer. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. that's exactly what I see as being the problem as well. And I said, I can't tell you if that's a fact until I see it 
in conclusion and then see how the dog responds to it. Like, do I need to do this and create this chain out of it to do something bad, to do something good in order to get reinforced? Is that what I've taken from this? Or do I just completely annihilate the the wrong behavior altogether only to do the good behavior and then get reinforced? That's a great question. I have seen it before in conclusion where I've seen dogs go through the process of doing the undesirable behavior, thinking that's connected to the desirable behavior and then getting reinforced for it. So people can create unintentional and ambiguous behaviors by not understanding how the dog views the concept, how it views all these shaped connectors happening together, how the links are forming. And to summarize on that, I guess the only way we really know that we've made the mistake is because the dog presents something that's wrong and then we think, well, how did I get there? That wasn't my intention Mm. at all. Like I really didn't mean to do that. But when you analyze it and you think, well, what I did is I unintentionally shaped a link into the chain that I actually didn't want there in any way, shape or form, but now it's there and now I have to condition it out of the behavior. So it's an interesting Mm. concept and and I think one that needs to have more attention paid to it. But we create some of these issues by just, as I said before, by not keenly observing actually what's going on uh, and not being invested totally in the program and thinking that all these solutions can just be easily gotten rid of. Well, now you may have a superstitious behavior that's going to be an absolute motherfucker to get rid of because now the dog's thinking, well, I have to do that behavior now for this sequence to pay off because it's always been that way. Let me tell you, when you get into that territory, good luck. Yeah. I think, you know, that has been my bread and butter lately dealing with that, been encountering heaps of dogs that it gets worse as well, you know, that do the wrong behavior in order to be corrected physically, you mm. know, with a tool in order to then do the right behavior. And I was trying to explain this to someone. I'm not sure if we discussed on the podcast, I'm going to have to make this video and put it out. But I think that we, we sometimes take for granted how linear dogs thinking can be. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, we, we sometimes like, especially say, take my dog, for example, he's, he's a good problem solver. I did so much shaping. In fact, I did way too much shaping with him when he was young that he thinks more than I would like him to, but he's probably an intelligent dog. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Actually, he, he has learned to solve problems, whether he's intelligent or not is irrelevant. Right. And he identifies problems and looks for answers. Can I just add there? That's all great until they start creating problems in that linkage. Yeah, true. Right. But even with all of that problem-solving capability that my dog has, I can stump him in a second. I'll have to make the video, but I was talking about it very recently where almost every day when we take him outside, I take him out to where he'll go and like empty out in the morning and we do the same in the evening, he'll almost always turn up with a tennis ball, right? And I'll throw that ball for him a few times. Like we'll throw it like three or four times and he puts it in my right hand. I can be on the phone talking to someone. I need to be engaged with him. In fact, I try to sort of stay a little bit disengaged because I don't want to promote the game too much, but he'll put the ball in my hand and I just kind of toss it and then he'll bring it back and he'll put it in my hand again and I toss it. But And he puts it in my right hand. But if I put my right hand in my pocket and offer him my left hand, he just stands there staring at me like an idiot because he's like got probably at this stage, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of reps of bringing it back and putting it directly in my right hand. And when I change something as simple as like my right hand's in my pocket, put it in my left, he's like, no, that's not the, that's not the sequence. That's not how we do it. Right. And he wants that to be thrown. And of course I could give him a command, right. I could tell him to put it in my left hand. If I told him to out or something like that, he would figure that out. But his own programming is that like, this is what I do. It's out, get the ball, bring it back, put it in the right hand, go out and get it again. And so that linear nature of a dog's thought process like that becomes really evident when you can see dogs get trapped in a loop of doing the wrong thing in order to be compelled back into doing the right thing and then being reinforced. Mm. And you sometimes get dogs that end up playing a very spicy game that they don't enjoy at all. Because, you know, we see this especially in the healing, right? And it's one of the examples I always use is that while we're healing along, the dog could look down and most people sort of you know, pretend it didn't happen and keep moving. And so at best, the dog thinks that it's allowed to look down and then back up and maintain eye contact. And at worst, think that it's meant to, right? That it's meant to look down in order to look back up. And that's the, you know, as you would say then, like a superstitious behavior that the dog has to go through. But- if we were to say use pressure and maybe it's an e-collar, maybe it's prong collar, whatever, in order that the dog bring its head back up, 
some dogs, if they're programmed into it, they think they're meant to, if it's a superstitious behavior where he's like, I'm meant to look down and then you'll compel me to look back up to some dogs. They just become so linear in their thinking that it doesn't occur to them the same way. My dog, it can't occur to him to put the ball in my left hand. Some of them that just doesn't occur to them that they shouldn't look down. They're mm, like, this they, is just the process. That's right. This they just, just can't extinguish it. Yeah. And they don't even realize that that's a part they can cut out of the chain. Mm. And, and especially this happens if the the amount of pressure that we use to bring the dog's head back up is so incremental, right? Where there isn't a big jump and the dog goes like, oh, no, I'm not going through that again, right? Even doing that is risky because then there's chances that the dog attaches that to the whole behavior rather than that little superstitious piece of it that you're trying to get rid of. So it's a really, it's a risky thing. There's an insert that I want to put in there just when I'm thinking about human psychology, because this was an interesting concept. I was a part of a conversation a while ago where somebody was actually getting personal therapy and they were sharing it. And they were talking about who they are, past tense, who they are, a collection of all of the experiences in developing who they have become. And the reason I wanted to share this, which I'm going to arrive at the point in a minute, the reason I want to share this is because I often think that was so interesting what that person said. I wonder if that's how dogs think in that linear behavior that you're just talking about before. So what the Mm. person said was they came to a conclusion, they knew there was a bunch of shit that they had to shift in their life. But the problem for them was when I get rid of this, who will I be? Because the sum of all my parts is who I am today. So who will I be when I shed this part of my personality that's made me Mm. become who I am? Now, Mm. that was such a hit in the head for me because it's had to happen in my life before. I've had to shed some certain trauma that's happened to me. And most people have. You and Jane experienced trauma when Axel was born. You know, like you had a lot of shit that was going on around that yeah. that period of time. We've all had trauma. Everyone's had it. You know, whether it be early childhood or even late into adulthood, life can be traumatic at times. So if you experience that format of, I have to get rid of this, and that's who I've been protecting for a long period of time, like I've amassed that type of person. So what if a dog thinks behaviorally, if I have to get rid of this, then what happens to everything else that I know? I don't know if, they, yeah. if they're that cognitive. I, I doubt it, but it's an interesting concept. Well, I think concept. They, they can be at least thinking, like, how do I get the reinforcer? Like, and especially exactly. when you get the really high drive dogs. That's, yeah. That's especially, this is sort of problematic with the extreme dogs that, like, have extreme desires, whether it's for food or whether it's for toys or biting or whatever it is. When they get really extreme, they're like, oh, I don't care like what it takes to get to that. I will endure anything it gets to that. Like I don't, there isn't anything you can do to stop me getting to that. I will go through anything. That's when it becomes really problematic and you have to be so careful with your inputs to that kind of dog because Mm. they're like, there's nothing that will stop me. There isn't an aversive that will, will turn me off. And in fact, all these aversives that you're trying to do to me to change behavior are only strengthening it because it's just pushing me through it. Have you seen the Cookie Monster T-shirt about without his cookies? Have you seen that? No. It relates to what you were saying. Oh, it's it's really sad. It's the Cookie Monster. And he's sitting there like in tears and he says, without the cookies, I'm just a monster. Wow. <laughs> Considering <laughs> I've been called Cookie Monster all my life, that's traumatic. <laughs> yeah. Without the cookies, I'm just a monster. That's interesting. And again, listening to that part of the, your conversation, there have been many times where I've experienced situations either with a client or at times even myself with behaviors that my dogs have been doing. And I thought to myself, why are you doing that? Now I'm questioning why are you doing it? I understand that we need to fix it. But there's some times where I've thought, well, obviously what I'm trying to fix it with is too complex for you. So I need to strip it down and try and get into the basis of making this fair and understandable to both of us. And even Mm -hmm. then the dog is struggling with it. And you're thinking to yourself, are you fucking stupid? I have made this so basic for you to follow through. All you need to do is basically connect the dots. But clearly there is something there that is so troubling to the dog because they're thinking, yeah, I know you've shown me this like 10 times or 50 times or whatever amount of duration that it is, but I'm still having trouble shrugging the past and letting go of it. It still doesn't Mm. make complete sense to me. Now, eventually it does. And you can move on when it does, but you just like there have been times where I just think I don't understand why you're losing or missing the point of this concept because not only have I explained it the best way I can in the most simplified model, but even other people who I would consider colleagues and mentors have done the same thing, yet the dog is still 
tripping over that point and you just think, wow, that's fascinating that you're really having trouble shrugging that behavior. But I guess when something is so ingrained and so connected at times and when you have such high belief around that behavior, then yeah, I I guess I can see why that model exists. Yeah. This is a big part of what my presentation at the ICP conference was about. It was about those dogs that get so fixated on the end point that no matter what happens to them along the way, they just are like, well, that's a pressure that strengthens the behavior. So Mm. long as I end up where I wanted to go, I don't really care about the journey that gets there. You know, and you get those super, like they may not even be that tough a dog, but they can end up that way because they just are like, no, I'll do whatever it takes. My goal is so important to me. And we see that in the working space. You know, you get dogs that are obsessed with biting or the ball or whatever like that. But then in the pet dog world, this tends to represent itself as those aggression cases and stuff like that. Like if the dog truly believes that it only survives because it bark, lunge, growls, and scares off the other dog. Mm. And if it really thinks that's the only thing that's keeping it alive, it doesn't matter how much pressure you put on the dog. It won't stop. If the dog is 100% convinced that death is the alternative, then there's no amount of prong collar that will stop it because the prong collar just hurts the other dog and its mind is going to kill it. So it just goes like, no, I'll, I'll put up with that. And it strengthens the behavior. It makes it stronger. And the dog is feels like be, not only did I – I'd still achieve my aim because I lived at the end, but I also, through the intensity of action, turned off the pressure that was being put onto me, like via whatever tool it is. So I think that's one of the tricky things. I think that that's what sort of, you know, I, I want to get the footage of my speech because I, I want to put big pieces of it out and put it online because I, like that's, I think, what gets overlooked is those dogs that get so fixated on the end point that they're like, you know, whatever, do whatever it is along the way. And that that happens because of a positive association to the endpoint, but also because of some aversive association to the endpoint that the dog's mm. trying to avoid. Hey, we better, we're running out of time. We still actually haven't addressed her questions directly. You better um, reread them because I, I know we've faded away from the original yeah. authenticity so of the says, question. When working with the box, does this have a high risk of emotional contagion and cause the dog to have an aversive to food? Or does this not matter because of the classical conditioning rules and all negative stimulus stops when the dog stops eating and continues as the dog is eating? So, hey, so something I want to say on the box stuff, right? So I'm devoted. While I was at Fabian's place, I recorded heaps of it. Now, you know, eventually at some point in my life, I'm going to make a new online course and I'm starting to gather all the footage for that. And one of the things I wanted to film was sort of, and I've been wanting to do this for ages, but I wanted to do it live with people. It's kind of a end all box video, (laughs) Like I wanted to explain it all. And then with those same people, I just explained it to like have at least 10 dogs come out and do it and and have a variety of dogs doing it for the first time. And as well as dogs that are experienced at it and finally did that spent two hours sort of going through it in agonizing detail. And then when I reviewed the footage, my microphone cut out at like 20 minutes in. Oh, so shit. No, I was furious. I was furious. Mm. But anyway, what I wanted to say on that is like this issue, like for sure, what Natalie's asking there about if people get the sequencing of box work wrong, for sure, you can make food aversive. If, if what happens is that the food goes in and then there's pressure on the dog, then yep, for sure, that association can be made and the dog goes like, I don't want to do the box or it, I don't want to do because every time food goes in there, something horrible happens. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, that sequencing has to be the other way around, right? So that there's some sort of difficulty, struggle, pressure, and that is done. There's an air gap and then food goes in. The next thing that's also really important to remember is that the payment has to be worthwhile. So whatever it is that you're doing to the dog has to be less of a struggle than the food that will overcome it, right? So like the dog has to be thinking, this is worth my while because I want what's on the other side of it. But all that said, what I think you know, people sort of have misinterpreted about the box work and it's what I really want to convey. And maybe I should organize, I think, I think what I'll end up doing is getting, like, I might do like a free half day thing in Sydney for 20 people or something and refilm that and get them all to bring dogs and do that. That's probably not a bad idea to get that footage. But what I was explaining in this video that didn't work is that I think too many people when they're doing that box get, they think of the pressure that comes while the dog is in the box as being something significant that the dog is like overcoming. And that's probably my fault for using bad language. You know, as I explained that, you know, I'm better at talking and I'm better at doing box work since it all became a thing. And I think that by the time you're at the point where you're putting something to the dog, a pressure that the dog really does have to overcome, like something that would otherwise worry the dog, the dog should be so competent at the box work and understand what's happening so well 
that he realizes that that is just like something to push through. Like he should know that the idea is like, that's a keep on going signal. That signal, that that thing that I was worried about in the past is a pressure that means stay doing what I'm doing rather than something horrible that the dog has to think of shit. I will beat this. The idea is that you go slow enough and it's incremental enough that Mm -hmm. that never occurs to the dog, that it is a terrible thing. So that even if you're sequencing and your timing isn't perfect, it's not going to be an issue because the dog thinks of it as a keep on going signal rather than some like horrible aversive thing that's happening to it. And if you, if you're at that point, and and if you're worried that the dog is thinking, oh God, this is some horrible aversive thing, like you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> you've gone way too fast. Yeah, it should be much. Yeah, you've gone over that, threshold. Right? Yep. Yeah, the dog should understand. My job is to keep my head in the box. So yep. that's probably something that I need to address with a better video in the future. The next thing she says, follow up question. Following in this vein of thought, where leading with food, then something bad happens. The dog has a negative emotion towards, can lead to poisoning food. Does this mean you should usually start with the pressure first? So that sort of relates to what I was saying, you know, right at the start of the episode when we we're talking about it. Relates to that. You shouldn't start with the pressure first in any regards to dog training. You should at one hundred percent start with the motivation and getting the dog, whether it's food, toys, game, whatever, getting the dog understanding all these things that you'll later use to counter condition or to change the emotional state or do whatever, you first have to actually be able to get the emotional state that you want to go from zero to what you want rather than from a negative to what you want. So no, you should never like start with pressure first, even in the box work, think that you have to get the dog going, understanding the box, even in a session where you intend to implement pressure. For me personally, I would still want to you do some reps where the dog knows like, yeah, I'm on the right track with a clean box with nothing going on and then throw in food so that he's like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Now you can start to implement some pressure. Mm. I guess a point that I want to thread into that conversation is I find that it's very hard on the concept of just food alone, just to poison food alone because food is an unconditioned reinforcer. There's nothing that we have to do to get any animal in the world to understand the concept of food. It needs it. It's a biological mm-hmm. Healthy system. animal, yeah. Healthy animal, yeah, exactly right. And even an unhealthy animal, to not have any form of nutritional uptake would be highly unlikely. What I would say in using probably more appropriate or better language is it's the behaviors that you're doing around food that you would poison around the dog. And the dog would Mm. see all of that as a system that's now setting it up to be punished or fail. And therefore, the dog would respond in that likelihood. But even a situation like that, minus you and the food still there and the dog there, I generally find that situations where dogs won't go into an area. Like I've had people say to me, I left food in a box and the dog wouldn't go near it. And then I walked away and I came back half a day later and the dog had eaten the food. I understand that the dog would be very jaded and very suspicious around the behavior around you or around a trainer that's poisoned the behavior around the whole construct of whatever you tried to set up. But food in general, unless it was physically sick and satiated, I would say that it's a temporary issue that would return after a period of time. These are just thoughts that are popping out of my head while we're having this conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that for sure you can, through not ideal training practices or accidentally get to the point where when you offer the dog food, it's like, no, I don't want that because that means something bad's about to happen to me. Yeah. And that's the behavior. Yeah. But the food is not really the issue. Like that same dog, if he was out walking around on the street and he saw a piece of kibble on the floor is likely still to eat it. Mm. It's not that the issue is food. It's the, the way that it's being delivered. And it's probably, you know, the whole picture of the delivery, not just giving the food. But the reality is that the problem is still kind of the same though, right? Even if it's not food being the problem, if you giving the dog food is the problem, you still have the same problem mm. as if it was food. And then, so her last part here, because we're almost out of time, is that if the dog is actively having a maladaptive response, lunging, barking, biting, et cetera, to a trigger, and you are offering food while the dog is having this response, will you be reinforcing the behavior? If not, will you be or can be uh, poisoning with your food? So I think that's one of the funny ones about, I would have said yes years ago, many, many years ago, I would have said for sure that like when you see people, dogs bark, lunge, growl, and people are marking and trying to give the dog food in that moment. And they're trying to desensitize counter condition. There was a time when I would have been like, yeah, they're wrecking the dog. They're reinforcing that behavior. But I think now I think I understand and many people understand better is that 
like that behavior is driven by an emotion. And the idea of presenting food in that moment is to try and change that emotion and therefore the behavior would go away. But I think the timing of how you do that, the way you present it has to be important. Yep. Like for me, I think that if a dog is bark, lunge, growling, I want the dog to make the choice. Like I want to be able to use a marker at the earliest onset of that and have the dog make the choice not to continue bark, lunge, growling and to turn and like take the food from me. And the way that I deliver that food, like backwards away from the the trigger would actually be the reinforcer. I'm going to give the dog the distance that it, it's trying to get from that bark, lunge, growl. And I think that by the time that I can give a marker and the dog give up on the behavior to turn and take the food, that is an indicator to me that I am changing the emotional state. But however, for sure, it's possible that you can reinforce the behavior. And, and for sure, I've seen that without a shadow of a doubt. I've seen dogs that you know, have been having an issue with another dog, have had problems and are scared and are doing the bark, lunge, growl because it's something that they're worried about. And then we've desensitized, we've counter-conditioned. But because of the sequencing and the way that people reinforce, the dog's like, oh, I meant to bark lunch crap. Yeah. There's two inserts that I just want to throw in there because I think it's relevant to the story that you're telling. Two words are variable and continuous. Because Mm. with your marker work, the way that you teach it and the way that you've educated people, you've developed a variability with the marker that the dog understands. This is not for the behavior I'm doing now. This marker means that I'm going to come back and get paid. So Mm. it doesn't, like if you were continually doing that, then I would say that's a dangerous precedence that you're setting up there. Because if the dog learned that every time I buck, lunge and growl, he hits the marker, I come back and get food. So of course he wants me to do that. Of course, that's a given. It happens every time. But because it's such a variable or an intermittent schedule with it, that the dog goes, well, I'm not sure why that happened, but I need to check out of what I was doing and run back and find out what I'm going to get paid. You might do a bunch of different things and the dog is going, oh, okay, so it means check out of that behavior or maybe if it's continuous in that line, I need to refocus and reschedule my interest in another behavior and then reinvest in that and then I'll get paid. So I think the relationship between continuous and variable needs to be considered in all those aspects and it's usually the continuous issue which people create the issue. Yeah. And I think that's the trick is to remember like, yes, the delivery of food in that moment is going to reinforce behavior. You were doing it initially to change emotional state and you probably should have done that somewhere else as well so that you change the emotional state of the dog. But for sure, you can reinforce the behavior of bark, lunge, growl. But the idea is that you're trying to capture the moments before that happens. Exactly. You're trying to convince the dog like, hey, that's not the behavior that we need. Now that you feel fine in this situation, that you're actually comfortable, you can start to offer me other behaviors that are reinforceable. And that's the whole point of initially, yeah, a couple of times you're going to end up marking and reinforcing during the time that the dog is bark, lunge, growling. And it's possible the dog makes that association, but really quick, you want to get to the point where the dog sees the trigger and looks to you and is like, hey, are we available to the thing? And you mark at that point and you go, yeah, we are. Like you don't have to go through the sequence of bark, lunge, Mm. growl. Because I mean, that is for sure one of the things that you see quite a lot of people, especially people who aren't prepared to use some pressure because once it starts, then you're kind of stuck. And then, you know, the dog can really get in his head like, oh, I'm meant to do this. And, and I, like, it's one of the ones that I've seen plenty of times is dogs that you can even tell by the way that they bark, lunch, growl. They're like, oh, this is a fucking job I've got to do. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm concerned. You see the dog, like even the way that they bark, it's like they bark as a question now. It's like, oh, is this what you want? Mm. So really often we say to people like, oh, stop reinforcing you driving that behavior. You're making it continue to look like you have a problem that you had yesterday, but you don't have that problem anymore. The dog's passed it. Like emotionally, he's fine. Now this is purely behavioral. And when it's behavioral, then you can punish it away. You could negatively reinforce a dog out of that behavior if it's happening. But the idea would be to capture that moment before it happens. So the dog's like, oh, I don't have to display it. But as we said, it can be possible that the dog gets in that sequence of like we said, where he's like, oh, I have to. That's just the process I have to go through. It's a very interesting thing, the whole discussion around perception versus reality Mm. and perspective. Perspective is something that needs to be considered in just about every single application you're going into, especially when you're dealing with behaviors. And there have been so many times, like let's just talk about human interaction, where I've had perception of one line of thinking, which hasn't been the line of thinking overall. In fact, Narelle and I were having a discussion a while ago, which turned into a respectable argument, but I had a perception of one way and Narelle had another way. And I was steadfast on my way of thinking until she explained to me where she was trying to present. And then I thought, well, that has presented a whole different gamut of where we were going. 
And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was prepared to let my ego subside and listen to what she said and I thought about it and I thought, well, she's right. I wasn't even prepared to listen to that side of the story. I was just set on my way of thinking about a certain application and I got myself all riled up about nothing. It wasn't anything Mm -hmm. that I needed to be concerned about. There's probably a whole episode in your perception being your reality. That's that's maybe next time. Mate, that again is tumbling down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Hey, I got to go. I got to do work. There's people banging on this studio telling me to get back to work. Yeah. But we'll be back in the studio again very soon, recording in person, Mm. back to our normal scheduled programming. Anything to add, sir? No, I'm glad you're back. I missed you. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, see I'll see you in person soon alright hey that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm as always if you like what you hear please like rate share subscribe do that through whatever subscription service you download us from some of you could do if you like what you hear to be honest it's always a bit of a spin out the people I see in the dog world are the same people I see all the time you know, I haven't been to many events train with the same people all the time but when I was at the ISCP conference and I think it was the same for you Glenn we were talking about this before we started recording when you start engaging with people again, now that we're traveling and you're going to places and the the feedback that we get from people about the podcast is incredible. For all the people that came and said hello to me at the ICP conference, I really appreciated that. It's a huge honor. It's an enormous thing when people walk up to me and just say, thank you for doing the show and all that kind of stuff. And when we get emails and, and, and I get messages about that stuff from people who I don't know otherwise, not just friends that I know are blowing smoke up my ass or anything like that, but people who give us that sort of genuine heartfelt feedback, it's a huge honor. And that I honestly can't thank you guys enough. I really appreciate all of you very, very much. So that is the way you can support the show. If you like it, just tell us or tell someone else. It's reinforcement to me. Especially when they pay us, when they've subscribed through Patreon and so forth. I don't want to discount what you just said because I receive that as well. Like I said, when we're up in Brisbane, I ask the crowd who listens to the canine paradigm and over 90% of the room put their hand up and people are walking up and telling the same thing that it's changed their life and it's changed their perspective and it's given them access or opened new doors to them. That's very humbling. There was one thing that I want to say to everybody, which I know we've said in earlier times, but I really want to reinforce this. If you see either one of us and you want to come up and talk to us and you just started in the industry, but you're intimidated, please face the fear and do it anyway. Like I don't want you to ever think that either one of us are, or any of us are inapproachable or that you're too small time to come over and talk to us. That's not it at all. We're one of you, like we're part of a community. We're not above the community or anything like that. We're still people who are learning. We're on our own journey of investigation and trying to do things better and become better people, become better dog trainers. I can't reinforce to you enough how important it is, especially from my perspective, to say, I'm one of you. I'm still on this journey with you and I'm part of your group. I'm part of your community. It's nice that you've embraced Pat and I as spokespeople and that you trusted some of our information, which leads me into another point is that we've always reinforced some of the stuff we're talking about. It's just a conversation. It's not always fact. We've ne- Very often wrong. Yeah. We've never got on this show and just said, we know everything and we're going to set the record straight. We're just talking about things, things that we found interesting. And we're throwing some facts in there that people have presented to us because there's a shit ton of people out there who are much smarter than we are in different things. That's been an amazing journey to share on. So please, please, please. I don't want you to ever feel intimidated to come over and say hello. In fact, I love it when I go to a seminar or even if I'm presenting on something or teaching that people want to talk to me and tell me about things that they liked on the show or things that they like in their own journey of training or what they're doing and where they're going and where they're thinking about things. Because for me, that's fascinating as well. Totally. All right. If you want to support the show, get a t-shirt. Yeah. Jump in there. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the discussion group. As you can tell, that's where we draw a lot of the inspiration for episodes of the show. We go in there, we check out all the posts. We're often looking for questions in there that we can answer on the show. So jump into there. But if you want to get in contact with us individually, you could shoot us an email. We are info at the paradigm.com. Goodbye.